Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. From the Arcadian Court in downtown Toronto, welcome to this, the continuation of the 112th season of the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you just joining us either through our webcast, our podcast, or on Rogers TV, welcome to our meeting today. Now, before our distinguished speaker is introduced, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you all to our head table guests, and I'd ask that each guest rise for a brief moment and then be seated as your name is called, and I'd ask that the audience please refrain from applauding until all of the head table guests have been introduced. Starting with our guest of honour, the Honourable Brad Wall, Premier of Saskatchewan. Mr. Ken Seitz, President and CEO of Canpotex. Ms. Andrea Wood, the immediate past president of the Empire Club of Canada and a senior vice president, legal services at TELUS. Mr. Mike Richmond, the co-chair of energy law at Macmillan LLP and a member of the National Energy Board. Ms. Tina Arvanides, director of the Empire Club of Canada and vice president of government relations and communications at the Ontario Energy Association. Sylvia Jones, the deputy leader of the PC Caucus critic for youth for children youth services and the MPP for Dufferin Caledon. Mr. Mark Romoff, Director, Empire Club of Canada and President and CEO of the Canada Canadian Council for Public Private Partnerships. My name is Gordon McIver. I'm the Executive Director of the National Executive Forum on Public Property and the President of the Empire Club of Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table. I would also be remiss if I did not recognize two very distinguished guests in the audience, uh, starting with our former Minister of National Defense, Peter McKay, who is now with Bennett Jones. Mr. McKay. And the former Clerk of the Privy Council of Canada, Wayne Wooters, with McCarthy Statro. Mr. Wooters. Welcome. We also have a group of students joining us today from Centennial College. So students, would you please rise and be recognized? Welcome. <laughs> Saskatchewan, the province named after the Saskatchewan River, which comes from the Cree language and means swift flowing river. It's always been a province that produces surprises for the rest of the nation. Just look at Gordie Howe, who we're remembering so fondly uh, this past couple of days. It split off from the Northwest Territories and joined the Canadian Confederation in 1905 and quickly became known as a stronghold for Canadian democratic socialism. Ten years before I was born in what was then its largest city, Regina, it elected North America's first social democratic government. When CBC was trying to determine who the greatest Canadian in our history was, a couple of years ago, it eventually settled on Tommy Douglas, one of the province's most famous and beloved sons, who is often credited with bringing us universal health care. Now, while some still view it as a largely agricultural province, this activity, combined with forestry, fishing, and hunting, actually only makes up about 7% of this highly diversified province's GDP. Only Alberta exceeds Saskatchewan in overall oil production and its mining sector, known around the entire world for potash and uranium, is as dynamic as it is sophisticated. Now, it may only have 14 of the 338 seats in the House of Commons, but every politician in the country knows that you ignore Saskatchewan at your own risk. It's become a sophisticated global economy, and Canadians living under its beautiful big skies have a quality of life that is the envy of many across the country. To get to where it is today, Saskatchewan went through many ups and downs, in fact, a few really hard times, and a lot of very different leaders. 
Some of these leaders had to deal with what is perhaps one of the region's biggest challenges, a a challenge that we all face as Canadians, but is particularly true in Saskatchewan. And, of course, I'm referring to the weather. This only Canadian province with man-made borders has the record for the highest ever recorded temperature in the country, 45 degrees Celsius, recorded in July of 1937, but also can see winter temperatures dip as low as minus 45 degrees Celsius. This is a continental climate of extremes and often significantly impacts the life of its residents. When the province's fourth premier, James Garfield Gardner, stood before the Empire Club podium for his second address to our club back in March of 1935, he, in fact, based his entire speech on the weather. It was a speech called Conditions in the West, and it was basically a speech about how devastating the recent drought had been on the agricultural economy, a problem so severe that many were calling for the resettlement of thousands of people who had just recently moved out to the new province. A brief quote from that speech, Uh, he said, We have a new worry on our minds. Some of us are asking the question at the present time as to whether or not people should remain in that section of the country that some seven or or eight years ago was considered to be flowing with a wealth that was only uh, suited to a chosen people. Today we're wondering whether we should move people out of the area, whether we should go back to the conditions which, which existed there before our population was brought in. And if, in any remarks I make today, I can inspire confidence in the minds of men who have made investments in that part of the country as to the future, I will consider my time with you here in Toronto to be very well spent. Today, those problems are still periodically very real, of course, but no longer life-threatening. Saskatchewan, under its incumbent leader, in fact, has received a triple-A credit rating from Standard & Poor's for the first time the highest level possible for a provincial government, and recently had an eight-year population growth that was more than the previous 75 years combined, bringing Saskatchewan's population to up well over 1.1 million inhabitants. In today's world, Saskatchewan's, Saskatchewan's leader is not a democratic socialist, although he believes deeply in improving the quality of life of his electorate, but rather one, who, one of the leading conservative voices in contemporary Canada. Hailing from Swift Current, the community that he's represented for the past 17 years, he's emerged as a forceful and articulate defender of both his province's and country's trade interests, particularly in the area of energy and agriculture, the two-pronged pillar that's at the very base of Saskatchewan's past and present economies. He obviously has his priorities right, as he's been consistently rated as Canada's most popular premier in public opinion polls. Today, he will address the Empire Club of Canada for the second time, and focus on the Energy East Pipeline Project, that 4,600-kilometre pipeline that will carry 1.1 million barrels of crude oil per day from Alberta and Saskatchewan to refineries in eastern Canada. Now, Premier Wall knows that uh, this project is not without its detractors, but he's also deeply convinced that it is a fundamentally important energy investment that will help secure the future economic well-being not only of his home province, but of the entire country. This is an important speech for Canadians, regardless of their political affiliations and beliefs, and as we continue to think about how to best construct our collective energy future. And once again, Saskatchewan will position itself as a purveyor of issues of national importance where big skies and big ideas are always uh, always overcome adversity and help to define our Canadian spirit. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour and pleasure to introduce back to the Empire Club for the second time the Premier of Saskatchewan, the Honourable Brad Wall.
Thank you very much, Gord. Thanks, everybody. Uh, grateful for the invitation to be here today, and thanks for that. Uh, that was a, it's a wonderful introduction. There's nothing like an Empire Club uh, introduction. Much appreciated. Minus 45 degrees. Uh, in Saskatchewan, we say, yeah, but it's a dry cold. And I've been there all my life, and I still don't know what that means. Uh, it, is, uh, it is good to be with you here today. Peter, it's very good to see you, sir. Uh, I know you're thinking about a number of things, and I won't get into what those things might be, but it's just good to reconnect. Folks in this room should know, though, that notwithstanding his, uh, well, he's, there's athletic prowess to be uh, talked about when you, when you speak about Peter McKay, in addition to his, uh, his political and uh, business career that he's had. He hosts regularly, annually, together with the Grey Cup, he hosts a, a touch football game. And I have had the pleasure of participating in that game on one occasion. It was the Grey Cup in Edmonton, where the Eskimos cheated their way past the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Uh, and we played a little game. It was sort of Saskatchewan people against Peter and all of his friends, which were from all over the country. And I'm not going to, you know, give it away, but he lost. <laughs> Badly. The, the first extra-provincial trip that I took, actually, after we were first elected... Uh, in 2007 was to this great city. Uh, we came to Great Cup. The Riders were in that one as well against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers who were then uh, in the Eastern Division uh, of the CFL. And for whatever reason, there was no Great Cup parade planned, uh, that tradition of Great Cups in Toronto. And so Rider Nation took it upon themselves, and Wayne, you'll appreciate this, to organize their own uh, uh, Great Cup parade. And we, uh, we went through the streets of Toronto without a permit or without escort, uh, we kind of got a little cold, so we just sort of veered over into the Eaton Center, uh, where we were asked to leave, actually, quite politely. Uh, the security people came over, and we said, no, Great Cup, CFL. And they said, we don't care what union you're with. It's so I have some good news uh, about a, uh, a pipeline that's been approved, a multi-billion dollar pipeline that's been approved uh, in Uganda. According to media reports, uh, the pipeline will run from western Uganda through Tanzania to the port of Tanga on the Indian Ocean. Tanzania actively sought to have the pipeline built on its own territory, as did Kenya. All three of these East African countries see oil as a blessing. They saw the pipeline as an opportunity. The president of Uganda said this in a State of the Nation speech just two weeks ago, quote, the 6.5 billion barrels of proven oil reserves, now that we have resolved the issue of the refinery and the pipeline, will help us more easily fund the roads and the railway and electricity and irrigation and some aspects of education and health, as well as the innovation of our long-suppressed scientists. Seems like a bit of a non-sequitur at the end, but you get, you get the picture. Meanwhile, back in Canada, where there are 170 billion barrels of oil of proven reserves, we have yet to approve a major pipeline uh, in the last decade or so, maybe beyond that. We're into this entangled and protracted, interminable process that's caused a lot of debate around the country, caused some concern in my part of the country. I'd like to focus on one of those pipelines proposed, but know that we'll be speaking in a general, I'll be trying to talk in a more general nature about the energy sector as well, but the pipeline I want to focus on is the Energy East pipeline. There are really four questions that I'm going to try to answer, try my best to answer today. The first is, do we need it? Do we need Energy East pipeline? The second is, is it safe? 
The third, who will benefit from the pipeline? And finally, will this pipeline pose any problem or challenge with respect to the ongoing battle that we face against climate change? So first and foremost, do we need Energy East? Well, from a business standpoint, the proponents have answered that question and their customers have answered that question. In a general market sense, there clearly has been a need for and a demand for pipelines over the last little while. Consider, if you will, that from 2010 to 2014, the U.S. crude oil pipeline network increased more than 12,000 miles, or 22 percent, that's according to the Association of Oil Pipelines south of the border. That's roughly the equivalent, by the way, of 12 Keystone pipelines. I'll leave you to ponder the consistency of approvals for those pipelines in the context of Keystone itself. But clearly, the, there's a need for pipelines. There's a need for conveyance. And even in this low-price environment, we know that that's going to continue. It's true we also need pipelines and Energy East in part to help reduce our dependency on foreign oil because in your Canada, which is home to the third greatest reserves of oil on the planet, we need to import oil from other countries. Energy East is not all about that. In part, Energy East is getting our product to Tidewater and exporting it, but Irving Oil has said at a minimum they'll, they'll replace 50,000 barrels a day of imported oil with oil from the pipeline. So we need it to help at least give ourselves the footing and the chance to reduce the dependency that we have on foreign oil. We need the pipeline to get a better return for the people that own this resource in the first place, and that's not the oil companies and it's not the provincial governments, but it's the people of Canada that own, uh, that own the resource. And for years they've been selling it at a discount because we have one customer. For all of this great reserve, we have one customer, and it's the United States, and so we get at best West Texas, usually some, something less than West Texas. Meanwhile, the world is paying the Brent price, and now that differential has closed, but at any given time, it has cost our Treasury alone $200 million in the industry, billions of dollars, because by and large, there's a premium uh, in terms of Brent versus West Texas. So we need the pipeline to help close that gap. We need that particular pipeline and all pipelines because while they are imperfect in terms of being a mode of conveyance, they are the safest. This we can say unequivocally. It's the safest way to move hydrocarbons. Last year, the Fraser Institute examined the federal government data from 2003 to 2013, and they discovered that when you move oil by rail, you are 4.5 times more likely to have a spill. 4.5 times more likely to have a spill based on moving oil on rail. Consider that fact in this context. In terms of our exports to the United States, they rose 42,000 barrels in 2010 to 42 million barrels in 2014 in terms of the amount of oil that was exported on rail. A 100,000% increase in terms of our oil exports to the U.S. moving on oil versus a pipeline. Remember the facts uh, about uh, the likelihood of a spill with respect to railing oil versus a pipeline. In the United States, rail car shipments of oil soared from 9,500 in 2008 to 493,000, these are rail cars, in 2014. And so therefore the risk of a spill has grown exponentially. Energy East has the potential to remove the equivalent of more than 1,500 oil cars from our rail system. This one pipeline alone 
will most assuredly move oil off of rail and into a pipeline. The importance of these facts, of course, is underscored by, by our own history, by the tragedy, the horrific tragedy at Lac Megantique. How about the question of safety? Today there are 117,000 kilometers of pipeline moving oil and gas across the country, right under Naomi Klein's nose. 117,000 kilometers developed over the last 60 years. And according to the NEB, these pipelines spilled an average of 1,100... Here's the honest facts. These pipelines did spill some oil. They spilled on average 1,100 barrels of oil per year. That's on average from 11 to 14. That's the equivalent of two rail cars of oil. And that means that our pipelines in this country, Canada's pipelines, deliver 99.999% of the oil and gas across our country without incident. But even with that safety record, there's a lot of debate around the safety issue with respect to Energy East, and I understand that. I have said publicly, look, Energy East is about two-thirds conversion and one-third new construction, and that part is true, but we need to remember, and I need to remember in this room, that that one-third that's new is principally in Quebec and through some pretty sensitive areas, and so that province quite rightly has questions that they need answered. I think there are answers to those questions, and I think in this case we have a proponent that's been earnest, in Quebec, the company de, uh, deployed nearly 100 environmental specialists, including wildlife bi biologists and vegetation ecologists. They've collected data from hundreds of waterways, plant ecosystems, wetland locations, and animal and bird habitat. It took them three years. They've had community consultations, about 130 open houses across the country for Energy East, talks with 7,000 landowners, 755 municipalities, and 150 Aboriginal governments. And it's not like they were just talking, because there has been 700 route changes as a result of that consultation in response to what the proponent in this case was hearing. So the system that we have, the NEB system, the regulatory process that we have in this country for this particular pipeline, and I would argue for all of the pipelines, it is serious, it is systematic, it is thorough, and it is conscientious. And it requires the diligence of the proponents, as it should. It requires hundreds of millions of dollars to be spent by the proponents, as it should. Because we do have, in this country, and we should be proud of this, stringent environmental regulations, we have a strong regulator, and we have the fact that pipelines in this country are safe. Not perfect, but they are safe. That brings us to the third question. Who benefits from the construction of Energy East? Well, obviously, you probably know I'm going to say everyone, all of us, as Canadians, will benefit from this particular pipeline. All of us, as Canadians, benefit from the energy sector in general. And if you have a doubt of this, consider what those terrible and horrific fires in Fort McMurray meant to the economy of the country. The Bank of Canada recently forecast that the Fort McMurray fires will shave 1.25 percentage points off of economic growth in the second quarter. Consider that there are 500,000 Canadians directly or indirectly employed in the, in, in the energy sector in this country. It is the largest private sector investment investor in Canada. 
Consider $17 billion. That's the amount of direct taxes and royalties paid by the energy sector to governments in our country. $17 billion to support quality of life that we prize in Canada. It's the equivalent of 680 new schools every year, or 1.8 million knee replacements. Peter, you were asking how my knees were in terms of the game coming up for this Grey Cup. 4.25 million childcare spaces. That's the equivalent of $17 billion in taxes in royalties. And never mind the indirect taxes that are generated then from the sector to governments as well. Here in Ontario, by the way, there are 1,100 companies who are direct suppliers to the energy sector, mostly in the oil sands, but generally to the energy sector. How about Energy East as an infrastructure project? And I, I think we're probably all tired of the term shovel-ready, but I think the definition is apt here. Energy East is expected to boost Canada's GDP by $55 billion over 30 years. The biggest, largest chunk of that is for the province of Ontario, $24 billion. Ontario would get the would get the most jobs, close to 3,900 in the development and construction phase and 1,500 permanent jobs. There's no question that this project's good for my province. And it's good for the province of Alberta, but it's good for all of Canada. We need Energy East to move our oil to tidewater, and everyone in the country can benefit from that. Finally, you hear people ask the question, what about, the, what about climate change? What about the overarching environmental concerns that we have as Canadians and we should have? If we build this pipeline, will it make climate change worse? I should note that it's a question rarely asked of other major developments in Canada. It is a question rarely asked of other major sectors in Canada. This province, for example, assembles more than 2.2 million vehicles a year. I'm proud of that as a Canadian. Our federal government and your provincial government are working to see that number increase. And that would also be good for us in Saskatchewan. It would be good for all of Canada if the auto sector got even stronger in central Canada. But tomorrow, if Ford or GM or Toyota announced a plan to build a brand new assembly plant in Brantford or Oshawa, would we see a protracted, interminable, deeply philosophical debate about the impact of the auto industry on climate change. And what if the federal government said to the auto sector, we're going to impose some new regulations in terms of the transportation of your product across Canada. And those regulations might be something like we're going to measure the source GHGs of manufacturing those cars, or maybe the life cycle GHG implications of those cars, the conveyance for fossil fuels, obviously. And if it doesn't measure up, we might not approve those cars to go on a rail to go across the country. Everyone in this room would think that would probably be pretty wrong-headed policy just to be, to understate the case. People right across this country in Western Canada would think, well, that, wouldn't, that just didn't, doesn't make any sense. What if in 2009, when that same auto sector was reeling and shedding thousands of jobs and requiring direct bailouts from government, equity investment from government. What if a federal government had then said, you know what we need? We need a brand new tax, an auto manufacturing tax for the country that will disproportionately impact on that sector. Well, that wouldn't make much sense either. And you could credibly argue that a, carb a national carbon tax at such a time as this 
is analogous to precisely that. The timing of it is crucial. More on that uh, in a moment. But back to the question, is Energy East going to affect climate change? The answer is no. If anything, it'll help uh, with respect to Canadian emissions. You know, the State Department weighed in a couple of times to the Obama administration on the Keystone issue. They actually pointed out that if uh, Keystone is built, uh, it shouldn't have a material effect on climate change because that oil will be in a pipeline instead of on rail, and greenhouse gas emissions, when you rail uh, oil and gas or you truck it, are greater than if it's in a pipeline. You can make the same argument uh, for, for Energy East. And if Canada doesn't happen to supply the oil to either the rest of its own citizens or the world, someone else will. The United States has already lifted their ban on, on exports, as you know. And there are many other countries with whom we compete as oil producers in the world who frankly don't give much of a dang about the environment, who care far less than the companies in this country, than the provincial governments in this country, than the federal government in this country. The oil is going to get to those places anyway. By 2040, the International Energy Agency predicts fossil fuels will still supply 75% of the world's energy needs. So stopping Energy East won't change any of this. This doesn't matter to many who believe that really killing the, the pipeline is necessary as a step in the rapid transition to the, quote, post-carbon economy that they desire. What if we did that? What would be the impact on the planet? What would be the impact on climate? If we shut down the entire energy sector in this country, you would eliminate 192 megatons of emissions. If you shut it all down, the oil sands are with about 68 megatons, but if you shut it all down, in our province and in Newfoundland, right across the country, it's 192 megatons that you'd save the planet in terms of CO2 emissions. Meanwhile, in China, Coal-fired power plants emit 4,000 megatons of CO2 a year. Meanwhile, in the United States, their coal plants emit 1,364 megatons of CO2 a year. Ladies and gentlemen, don't misunderstand me. We do have to do more in our country in terms of our own domestic emissions, but we do need context, and we need some perspective, I think, especially if we're going to attach these matters to the debate around pipelines. It strikes me that there's three things we can do about climate change. One, we can focus on adaptation. And if you talk to northern premiers of northern territories, they will tell you that the manifestations of climate change are real. They're happening today. And we as Canada arguably should be doing more to focus on a response to what's happening in those places. The second thing is a domestic approach. We can reduce our own emissions and we can have different fiscal instruments, cap and trade and carbon taxes and banning and conservation, and all of that's fine. We need to do more domestically. Thirdly, we can focus on this global situation. And I think Canadians are pragmatic problem solvers. I think Canadians understand that if there are 2,400 coal plants being built right now in the world, mostly in Asia, we should probably be maybe even more concerned about that than the 1.6% of global emissions that come from this country. Not letting anyone here off the hook in terms of doing more domestically, but realistically focusing on technology that can solve those problems. That's what we've chosen to do in Saskatchewan. We've made, I think, the largest public sector on a per capita basis, the largest pu public sector investment to fight climate change at Boundary Dam 3, which is a carbon capture and sequestration project unit that's attached to a coal fire plant that's working. We had some commission year challenges 
uh, last year, and our engineers have made the adjustment, and we're on track to sequester 800,000 tons of CO2 at this one particular plant, and it'll burn that coal two or three times cleaner than combined cycle natural gas. And people are coming from around the world because that's pretty innovative and maybe transformational, and it speaks to an actual challenge that were we to meet, we would have real progress in terms of the fight against climate change. So ladies and gentlemen, those are the four questions that I wanted to canvas and hopefully try to answer today. Do we need the pipeline? Respectfully, yes. Will Energy East operate safely? Yes. That's how pipelines operate in our country. Who will benefit? All of Canada will benefit. And will Energy East make the problem of climate change worse? The answer is no. In fact, there may be a salutary impact because of the oil moving to the pipeline from rail. I know that these answers won't satisfy everyone. There was a character on The Simpsons that once said that he wasn't interested in the ends of any more sentences. Uh, I think that in this debate, uh, on both sides perhaps, we're not as interested at the end, in the end of each other's sentences as we should be. But I am optimistic. I'm hopeful. Because, you know, Canadians at the end of the day, we're, we're pragmatic. By and large, we're strangers to dogma. And we're also problem solvers. I like what the mayor of Quebec City said earlier this year. Régis Lebon said in an interview that he wasn't happy with TransCanada, to be fair. He wanted more information from the company. But on the top of, topic of building pipelines, this is what he said. Quote, I think that in a normal country, all organizations that want to build infrastructure for transporting energy should be able to do it. I wonder how I would feel if a province or a region in a province prevented Hydro-Quebec from building its transmission line. Remember, this is the mayor of Quebec City. I would feel exactly like the people in the West do now, he said. I understand them. Close the quote. Let us all strive for that understanding. Let us understand the importance of this particular project, but... In, in a general sense, let us understand the importance of the energy sector to all of Canada. Let's be proud of it. Let us understand the national interest, the shared interest that is at stake with the Energy East pipeline. It is a nation-building opportunity, to be sure. Thanks for your time today. Ladies and gentlemen, here to express our collective appreciation for that excellent address today is Ken Seitz. Well, hello, everyone. And uh, yes, it's actually easy to express appreciation for our premier in Saskatchewan. I myself am from Saskatchewan. I work in Saskatchewan. Our head office is there. And I must say that uh, we in, in the province and the vast majority of us are quite proud of our Premier from that part of the world. Uh, he tours around the world making us proud all the time. And of course, today is no exception. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Mr. Premier, for your insights. And uh, I, I always appreciate the very clear and consistent message that comes from our, our Premier on these matters. I will say that... Uh, no one understands the challenges associated with moving commodities out of Western Canada more than we do as Campitex. For those of you that don't know us, we are Canada's largest mineral exporter. We uh, move about 
10 to 12 million tons of potash from the landlocked Canadian prairies to over 40 countries worldwide. We, uh, we do so with our vast supply chain, our network of rail, and uh, many of you have ever been in, in uh, our part of the country. You've had to sit and wait for a Capitex train for, you know, often uh, many, many, well, certainly minutes and hours. And it's very difficult if you're trying to get to a hockey game and, and you know, you're late. We always ask for, you know, forgiveness. So vast supply chain of trains, of port facilities uh, on both coasts, and ocean-going vessels, of course. And so... You know, we're really, really thrilled to be here with the Premier and thrilled to hear about the priority that's being set around moving commodities, moving commodities off our Canadian prairies. And we know that our Premier, the Premier, takes that very seriously. So I'll just say, again, thank you, Mr. Premier, for the keen insights. I'm, uh, I'm quite certain that everyone in this room would love to come back and hear you speak again in the future. And to our friends and colleagues in the room, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's our pleasure uh, to sponsor today's event. Please come see us in Saskatchewan anytime, uh, whether it's minus 45 or plus 45, or we'll always welcome you there. And, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I'm just saying uh, on the way in, perhaps you could even come. Uh, we have a brand new stadium in Regina. It'll be ready in 2017. You can see the Argonauts get whooped by the Rough Riders. So, <laughs> so that would be fun, too. So please enjoy the rest of your day again. Thank you. And thank you, Mr. Premier. Thank you very much, Ken, and thanks again to uh, Campotex for, uh, for sponsoring today's event. We'd also like to thank uh, Manitoba Pork for uh, being our student table sponsor and uh, our VIP sponsor as well, and also to TELUS. Thank you, Andrea, for sponsoring another student table as well. We'd also like to thank the National Post, which is our print media sponsor, and Rogers TV, our local broadcaster. Also, a special call out to uh, mediaevents.ca, Canada's only online event space. They cover us on website or webcasting and podcasting, which, as you may know, is the way most people now actually view Empire Club events. Follow us on Twitter at Empire underscore Club, and please visit, visit us online at empireclub.org, and you can also follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your attendance today, and this meeting is now adjourned.